As we continue our series that we launched last week on the reality of God, we turn our attention to the next passage in 1 John. For the next six weeks, we'll be looking at the first epistle that John writes. Last week, we introduced the letter of 1 John and explained that John, at the time of him writing this first epistle, was an old man. He had come to the end of his life. He had come to the end of his ministry. And he was writing to a church that was facing persecution. He was writing to a church that was beginning to question what they believe. They were be- he was writing to a church that was beginning to question, is God real in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the storm? And last week we looked at John's introduction. We looked at the first four verses of the first epistle of John, where John writes that The foundation of our faith, the basis of what we believe is real because this God that we profess, the God that we believe in, is not some ethereal God, but that this God has actually come down and put on flesh. The God has been made man, and the one who proclaims this God proclaims this. John says, we touched him, and we heard him, and we walked with him. It was the objective truth of God, which is the foundation for all that we believe, which John is trying to, attempting to reassure these young believers. As I said last week, he addresses them all throughout this letter as his little children, as a father writing to his children to remind them and to reassure them and to remind them of the certainty of God in their lives. John, to this day, reminds us as little children. Let's turn our attention to the Word of God as we find it in 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 8, reading through verse 2. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him out to a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. A few years ago at the World Economic Forum, a thousand millennials were interviewed and surveyed to get their opinion on what was, in their opinion, the world's greatest problems. In no particular order, the survey came back as follows. Unemployment, security, lack of education, clean water, religious conflict, Poverty and war. Unemployment, security, lack of education, clean water, religious conflict, poverty, and war. 
were identified as the world's greatest problems. And I'm sure we could dissect each one of them and make a case for how one is greater than the other. And I'm sure if you were to poll another group of people, you might get a different survey. You might get different results in identifying what are the greatest problems facing this earth or facing the world today. I'm sure if you were to take simply a survey of the group in this room or the people in this room and to identify what are the world's greatest problems, what are this country's greatest problems, what are this community's greatest problems, I'm sure we would get a dozen results and a dozen answers to understand what really is the problem in this world. And although we might get different results and we might get different answers and we might get a different survey to answer the questions of the problems of this world, the one thing that we can all agree on is that our world is full of problems. The one thing we can all agree is that there's nobody on the face of this earth that would walk through life, doesn't matter what country, what culture, what period of time, and not identify and not admit that our world is full of problems. But it's here in 1 John that John identifies the world's greatest problem. It's here in 1 John that John wants us to understand. He wants his little children to understand that yes, the world is full of problems. And although people in the world might give you myriads of answers for what is a result and what causes all of the problems in the world, John wants us to understand that if you believe in the reality of God, you need to understand that there is ultimately one problem with this world. The reason this world seems like it's turned upside down, the reason there are struggles and problems in life is the result of one problem. And so what I want to do this morning, taking the passage that we read today, I want us to look at the world's greatest problem, and I want us to look at God's great solution. The world's greatest problem and God's great solution. You see, John wants his readers and he wants ultimately us to understand this morning that if God is real, you need to understand two fundamental things about life. If God is real, you need to understand two fundamental things in life. The world's greatest problem and God's great solution. What is the world's greatest problem? See, what John says here is not that lack of education is the world's greatest problem. He doesn't say poverty. He doesn't say clean water. He doesn't say religious conflict. He doesn't say poverty and war. What John would say is they are all symptoms of the world's greatest problem, but fundamentally, that is not what ultimately plagues you and me. You see, what John identifies in verses 8 through 10 as the world's greatest problem is sin. And it's in verses 8 and 10 that John gives us a wonderful biblical synopsis of all of humanity. In verse 8, he says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In verse 10, it says, if we have not sin, we make him, meaning God, a liar. What John wants us to understand is that fundamentally, the world's greatest problem is sin. And John says something very interesting in verse 8 and 10. John is not repeating himself. You might look at verse 8 and 10 and say, well, in verse 8 he says we have, 
we have sinned. And in verse 10, he says, we have sinned. He's simply repeating himself. No, he is saying something very important about the human condition. He is saying that, as John Piper says, we're not sinners because we sin. He says, we sin because we're sinners. You see, what John wants us to understand is that when you look at all of the violations of humanity, that when we look at sin simply as violations, we don't, don't understand fundamentally what our sin nature is all about. He wants us to understand that fundamentally we have sin, that we are sinners, that this is something that plagues the entire world, that we are fundamentally sinners by nature. John wants us to understand in verse 8 that not only have I sinned, but I have sinned. Not only have I sinned, but I have sinned. All throughout the Bible, we are told that we are born and conceived into this condition. We are born and conceived into the condition of depravity. C.E.M. Jode, a famous English philosopher who walked away from Christianity, eventually came back to Christianity after 40 years, and he says this, It is because we have rejected the doctrine of original sin that nothing makes sense anymore. It's because we've rejected the doctrine of original sin that we, on the left, are always disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of peace people to be reasonable, Disappointed by the subservience of intellect to emotion, by the failure of true socialism to arrive, by the behavior of nations and politicians, by the masses' preferences for Hollywood to Shakespeare to Sinatra to Beethoven, and above all else, the reoccurring fact of war. Because we have rejected the doctrine of original sin, we will never understand anything that happens to us. You see, we will never make sense of life and the turmoil of life, and the disappointments of life, and the tragedies of life, and the brokenness of life, and the problems of our world until we embrace and understand the teaching of sin, this teaching of the brokenness of our world. See, what John wants us to understand when he says in verses 8 that we are deceiving ourselves in verse 10 that we're making him out to be a liar is what John is saying is if you don't understand sin as the fundamental problem of life and the world's greatest problem you will forever be deceived and never truly understand life and never understand yourself and never understand how could somebody treat you that way and how history unfolds and ultimately, what John wants us to understand in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to a liar. We will never understand what God says about Jesus. You see, the story of the gospel and the story of redemption, the story that God unfolds and tells his people about the story of Jesus and his redemption will never make sense until we understand the gravity of the world's greatest problem being sin. The reality of sin is the world's greatest problem. But John doesn't stop there. He not only wants us to understand the reality of the world's greatest problem, but God offers us the world's greatest solution. 
You see, God does not leave us hanging. He uses John to relate to us that in light of understanding the world's greatest problem, he moves on in verses 1 and 2 to explain that Jesus has provided a solution, that Jesus has provided the greatest answer. And he says, my little children, in verse 1, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, what an advocate is, is one who speaks on your behalf. It's one who defends you. To an advocate all throughout the ancient times and all throughout the scriptures, an advocate served as a legal representative, one who would speak on your behalf, one who would defend you. And what John wants us to understand is that in light of humanity's greatest problem being sin, and once we realize that this is the greatest problem that plagues us, we will begin to understand that we are such a moral failure that there is no way that we are worthy to approach God. That there is no way that we are worthy to to directly go to God. But you ask the question, why not? Why can't God, if God is truly loving, if God is truly merciful, if God is the one that offers complete forgiveness, why can't we just go directly to God? Yes, we admit we're sinful. We admit that we are broken. We realize this is the greatest problem that we face. But why has God not provided such a way that we can go directly to God and just let us in and ask for forgiveness? You see, the story of the whole Old Testament points to God not allowing us to simply go forward. It points to God simply not allowing us to go directly in, right? All throughout the Old Testament, we see stories of sacrifice and atonement. We see the stories of the high priest offering sacrifice on behalf of the people, which reminds us that we simply can't go in. We can't go directly to God to offer forgiveness. You see, the problem is this, that God simply can't forgive. You say, what? I thought I came to church to hear a good word. I thought I came to church to hear good news. You see, the reason God can't turn a blind eye is because God is ultimately the judge. And the reason that God can't simply forgive is because someone has to pay. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, the sacrifice is pointed towards someone making a payment for our sin, for your sin, and for my sin. And that's the need for an advocate. You see, John says that in light of your greatest problem being sin, and in light of the dilemma that God simply can't let us in because God is holy and we are not, John says we have an advocate And the advocate is the only answer. And what's interesting is that an advocate in ancient times was often used during war and during battle. What an advocate would be used for would be used as a legal representative for a country. And instead of a country going to battle, two countries going to battle against each other and losing hundreds and hundreds of lives, a country or an army would elect an advocate or a champion to fight on their behalf. And this is what the advocate would do. If the advocate won the war, the country would be treated victorious. But if the advocate lost the war, the country would be treated as the loser. 
And so the advocate would represent the country, would, would represent them as a champion. If the champion was victorious, you were treated as victorious. If the champion or the advocate was defeated, you were treated as one defeated. But John says, you have an advocate. You have an advocate that goes to the Father on your behalf. And John calls this advocate in verse 1, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, what the advocate does in the person of Jesus Christ is this advocate, this champion, goes to the Father as our legal representative. And he goes to the Father. And this is not what John says. John does not say that Jesus is the merciful one. You see, what Jesus does before the throne of God is he does not say, give him mercy, let him off the hook. I, knew, I, I know he screwed up again. I know he messed up again. But for old time's sake, can you just let him off the hook this one time? It doesn't, John doesn't call him Jesus the merciful as one who is pleading for mercy on our behalf. No, John says he's greater than that. He says we have an advocate that doesn't plead for mercy. He says we have an advocate that pleads for righteousness and for justice. You see, what our advocate does, Jesus Christ, is that he stands before the Father and he says, on the basis of my righteousness, on the basis of my sacrifice, on the basis of my death, you have no right to touch him. You have no right to touch her. My death is all sufficient. My sacrifice is all satisfying. And John says, that is what you need to hear this morning. In light of our greatest problem being sin, which keeps us from the Father, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who pleads on our behalf to the Father and says, on the basis of my righteousness and my death and my sacrifice, they are forever protected. Jesus Christ, like any good lawyer, pleads our case before the Father and before the throne of God. And that is good news for you this morning, that in light of our greatest problem, God has given us the greatest answer and God has given us the greatest solution that Jesus Christ, on behalf of the Father, on behalf, on behalf of sinners like you and me before the Father, pleads his case and says, this is the case that I make before you. Father, your law demands death <clears throat> in payment for the sins of my client. <clears throat> I've died the death. The punishment has been taken. Jesus doesn't demand mercy. He demands justice. And we can now go to the Father with confidence on the basis of our advocate, on the basis of our defender, on the basis of Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, this is the only reason why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 can make this bold claim that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. How in the world can any man make a claim like that? There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Why? Because Jesus pleads our case before the Father. That my brother, that my sister that believes in me cannot be condemned because I, Jesus Christ the righteous, have taken the condemnation for them. It's the only way in life that we can deal with disappointment. Something in our life that we lose... Why? Because Jesus becomes our case. 
It's the only way that we can deal with persecution and hardships and disappointment. It's the only reason why Stephen the martyr in Acts, in the book of Acts, in the midst of being called a loser, in the midst of being called a criminal and a liar and a man who stands condemned as the first martyr for the church, what does it say? He can look up and what does it say? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He sees the one that has taken all of his persecution and all of the ridicule and all of the condemnation and he sees Jesus commending him to the Father on his behalf. You see, there are two types of people in the room this morning. There's the person that in light of the world's greatest problem being sin will say this, I'm not really that bad, Pastor. Right? How can an educated man that has an education beyond the eighth grade stand in the pulpit and talk about sin in South Florida in the 21st century? When I look at my life, it's just not that bad. It's just not that broken. And there are people in this room this morning, nevertheless, that will say that I am so good to the extent that they can't imagine a God that wouldn't accept them on the basis of their goodness and their morally upstanding life. Inevitably, there are people in this room this morning. But there's people on the other extreme of the the spectrum that say this, that in light of the world's greatest problem being sin, there are people in this room, inevitably, that think they are so bad and so unworthy that it absolutely crushes them today. Crushes them to the extent that they could never imagine God loving them. And guess what the cross of Jesus Christ does? It blows both of those out of the water. You see, what the cross of Jesus Christ says is this. You think you're good? I had to send my son to this earth to take your place on the cross And you think you're good? And for the person that thinks they are so unworthy, the same cross says this, you think you're unworthy? I went to the extent of sending my son to the cross to die on the cross for you so that you could live forever. You see, the beauty of the cross is there hangs our defender. There hangs our advocate that says, you're not good but that Jesus was good for you. You're unworthy? Yes, but Jesus was worthy for you. And the good news this morning is that Jesus can be your advocate, that Jesus can be your defender, that Jesus can be your covering simply by believing in him. Not my worthiness, but Jesus' worthiness for me. I'll close with this. In the fall of 2008, a gang of terrorists stormed the Taj Mahal Palace in Mumbai, India, leaving 200 dead, except for one man. One man survived. They interviewed this one man after this incident, and they said, how in the world did you survive? He said, they took me for dead. I was covered in another man's blood. You see, the good news for you this morning, for those that believe in Jesus Christ as your only Lord, and as your only Savior, 
and your only hope is that you are covered in another man's blood. The blood of the righteous one, the blood of the advocate, the blood of the defender, so that when we stand before the Father, when we stand before God one day, He does not look at us. He does not look at our unworthiness. He does not look at our guilt and our shame and our sin. But those who are covered in Christ this morning, we have a promise that one day we will stand before God our Father and He will see the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it will be the very blood of the righteous one that will be our case before the Father. His life for me his death for me, and as a child of God, which you can be this morning, simply by acknowledging, yes, this greatest problem is my problem, that yes, Lord, I am a sinner, and I am unworthy to approach the throne of God, but I humbly commit my life this day to a man who lived the life I couldn't live and died the death that was reserved for me only to be raised from the dead so that I could have an advocate before the Father. You can be a child of God this morning simply by believing in Jesus Christ and you can walk out of this place this morning with a defender, Jesus the righteous, and forever sing before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, and my name is graven, written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, and no tongue, and no tongue can bid me thence depart.